it's so important to understand the generation divide in Ireland yeah. and the difference between the generation mm-hmm. ahead of me and the one, you know, my, my parents' generation and actually their parents' generation and my generation. I mean, I can count on my hands the amount of people I know my age who are practicing Catholics. Hello and welcome to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the project coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at the University of Windsor Law School. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And uh, today's episode is about a very interesting situation happening in Ireland right now. Julie, I know this is something that you're kind of revisiting. Yes, I am. And, you know, I, sh- I should probably give an immediate disclaimer here that this is another podcast in which my own views are going to be painfully clear. But it's a really fascinating situation. It goes back, in fact, to 1983. And in 1983, when I was a very junior law professor at University College Cork in Ireland, the first woman law professor they had, there was a constitutional referendum held in Ireland that I worked on and was very involved in. And that was to pass an amendment, the so-called Eighth Amendment, and you're going to hear a lot about that in the podcast, the Eighth Amendment, to the Irish Constitution. And I'm going to read what that said, because I think it's important that people understand what the Eighth Amendment says. This gave equal right to life to a pregnant woman and the child that she was carrying from the moment of conception. And it reads as follows. The state acknowledges the right to life of the unborn and with due regard to the equal right to life of the mother, guarantees in its laws to respect and as far as practicable by its laws to defend and vindicate that right. So I worked on that campaign in 1983, and one of the things I tried to do as a law professor was to try to explain to people, and this is a complex issue, why making this a constitutional problem would extend the power of the state over women's lives, whereas abortion was already illegal. But there was a widespread fear in Ireland at that time, and this was something that was the subject of sermons in churches across Mm. the country at the time, that the courts would intervene, and they would impose abortion rights, and having a protection in the Constitution was the only way to guarantee that that wouldn't happen. And the Eighth Amendment was duly passed by popular vote in September of 1983 by 67%, by a very large majority. Since 1983, it's estimated that approximately 170,000 women and girls have travelled from Ireland to the UK to access abortion services. And it's, of course, important to note that this isn't an option available to women on lower incomes because they have to not only pay to travel, but also for the services they receive uh, in the UK for the medical services that they receive. And, of course, it's a very traumatic journey at a very difficult time in people's lives. Despite promising in 1983 that they'd never do this, the Irish government has also used the Eighth Amendment since then to make an example in one particular case of a young woman, pregnant teenager who'd been raped, injuncting her, preventing her from leaving the country to go to the UK to get access to abortion services. Now, that case was eventually overturned on appeal to the Supreme Court, but it really exposed the danger 
of the Eighth Amendment to the life and the health of Irish women. So this year, the campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment is in full swing, and the vote will take place on May the 25th. The campaign has focused on the constraints that the amendment has placed now for 35 years on pregnant women and their doctors. Uh, it gives the state a very powerful role in decisions that others would argue should be medical and private and determined by a woman and her doctor alone about the continuation of pregnancy. So in the podcast, that's a rather lengthy explanation, but I think that the background's important <laughs> here important. for people we to understand. Uh, I talked recently with two young women who are actually working on the campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment as part of the student group at Trinity College Dublin. Let me just say a little bit about each of them. Shibangi Kamaka, first of all, is a medical student, and as she explained, she's not actually an Irish citizen, but she's hoping to make her medical career in Ireland and to remain in Ireland. And her comments, I think, are very interesting because they reflect concerns from the medical community about the health policy consequences of giving equal rights to life to the fetus within the Constitution. And she's working to repeal the Eighth along with uh, her colleague Kira Murphy, who is also a student at Trinity College Dublin. She's actually secretary of the university group. And Kira begins the conversation that follows now by answering the first question that I put to both of them, which asks them, what does repeal the Eighth mean for you and why are you working on this campaign? For me, Repeal D8 is kind of about trying to create an Ireland that I can live in and that I am comfortable living in. On like a personal level, I obviously I was raised um, in, you know, went to a Catholic primary school, lived with my granny who's staunch Catholic, was mm. raised with pro-life rhetoric my entire life. Life begins at conception and that mm. anything that you do to interfere with that is murder and there is this kind of this an uncompromising nature, I suppose, to it. And I wasn't really confronted with the issue until one of my best friends got pregnant. Contraception failed and she got pregnant. And luckily we were in, I was on Erasmus in France and she went back to America to be with her family um, and have that support to get an abortion. And it wasn't until I kind of saw that that I realised just how terrible it was the burden that Ireland puts on women in that situation in that like incredibly difficult situation so it's about creating an Ireland that is like that I, that is compassionate and yeah that basically sticks by the values that I think are really important. Shabangi tell me something about what it means to you to work on this campaign. So I'm first of all a medical student and a researcher yeah. And I'm also involved in the campaign creatively. So I guess the way you described it as having like several different motivations, I think that applies particularly to me. I mean, mm. I'm coming at this as one of the organizers for medical students for choice here. And so a huge amount of motivation for me is providing the best options for healthcare professionals and future healthcare professionals right. to be able to you know, legitimately and legally provide health care that aligns with 
pregnant people's best interests and choices in this country, which is something mm. we aren't able to do right now. Also, as someone who can't actually vote here because I'm not an Irish citizen, constantly highlighted to me how disenfranchised people who are living here as long-term residents actually are in terms of receiving care. Amongst your colleagues, as a medical student, are you seeing yeah. a lot of different attitudes amongst your peers about this issue? Um, I think a lot of the attitudes that you're seeing that wouldn't be pro-choice are kind of coming from a lot of the, you know, different perspectives you talked about, like religious and cultural perspectives mm. surrounding the issue. I mean, by and large, most people in the profession are committed to, you know, serving as advocates for people's voices who aren't heard and right. as advocates for improved healthcare. So we right. are seeing a large pro-choice movement. But a lot of the other perspectives that sort of play into individual opinions have to do with sort of the culture of, you know, paternalistic medicine that we've had, I suppose, all around the world, but especially here where it is so interlinked with the church. Can you explain a little bit for a North American audience who might be thinking, wait, isn't Ireland that country that was the first in the world to legalize marriage <laughs> equality? I mean, you know, isn't Ireland a really kind of socially liberal place now? And, and I think, you know, this has a lot to do with the history of issues around birth control mm -hmm. and abortion in Ireland. But could you say a little bit about that and what you would do to try to explain what seem to be some of these sort of strange juxtapositions to people outside of Ireland? I think uh, you've put it fairly succinctly there. The, the most first thing to understand about Ireland is the contradictory nature of so much of the widely held beliefs. There's no history of kind of practicing what you preach in Ireland. And there's almost like an excessive hypocrisy and one that people are kind of comfortable living with. Um, well, partly it seemed to me when I lived in Ireland that it was a, a general discomfort with any kind of public acknowledgement of sex. But that doesn't quite yeah. work with the why is marriage equality being realized. I think there's kind of two main reasons that marriage equality um, was passed. And one of them is that it's kind of seen as like a private issue. So, you know, the state doesn't mm -hmm. have to enforce it. It's kind of like, okay, what you do in your own home, you do in your own home. And there is a, there is a very strong public-private kind of divide. But also, it's so important to understand the generation divide in Ireland yeah. and the difference between the generation mm -hmm. ahead of me and the one, you know, my, my parents' generation and especially their parents' generation and my generation. I can count on my hands the amount of people I know my age who are practicing Catholics. I mean, the general, you know, basic dichotomy it's broken down to is having, you know, someone supporting love unconditionally, no matter what levels of discrimination you experience in the marriage equality referendum. So I also think that the debate around the AIDS is much more polarized in some ways than the marriage equality one had ever been. Mm. Because when you think about a debate on equality, at the end of the day, it fosters, like just the terminology of it, fosters connotations to openness and inclusivity. Yes. Whereas with the eighth, we're not often debating the eighth. We often just narrow down the folks onto abortion, forgetting debating about, you know, 
equal rights of access to healthcare for everyone who lives here, forgetting the fact that the eighth has far further reaching consequences than abortion itself. It means that anyone who could at any point conceivably get pregnant has to essentially forego their rights to a huge amount of healthcare access. And so, yes, in some ways, they're not so dissimilar after all, but I think it comes down to the separation, as people see it, of being between either, you know, supporting equal love. I think people see it as, you know, oh, yeah, in marriage equality, we're giving two adults equal agency, whereas in the AIDS debate, we're seeing it as giving, you know, this, I suppose, child, fetus, whatever terminology you choose to use, equal and more agency than the right of the woman who can already spend for herself and sure she shouldn't have made the choice to have sex anyway. So, Shibangi, what are you expecting? You're going to learn on May the 25th about these polarized views. And, and I'm especially interested because I went through this process myself 35 years ago. What, what are the kinds of reactions you've been getting from people as you canvass? expecting a lot on May the 26th when the results actually start coming in. And I'm fully expectant of a yes vote. I'm not confident on what the margins will be, but the margins don't need to be great considering the outcomes of past referendums, such as the divorce referendum in Ireland. Yes. So it doesn't need yes. to be a large margin to be significant. Yeah, I believe that it is actually got a lot more cross-generational support than one might anticipate. I mean, I was out today helping do Together for Yes um, promotional work for campaigning, so just some campaigning videos. And just from a random call-out to all sections of society, we had an incredible breakdown of age and gender and ethnicity. And I do think that people appreciate that this is something where it does affect everyone and everyone can have a say. One of the points that Kira has made is that you do tend to see a bit of a generational divide here in terms of people who grew up with a very different relationship with the Catholic Church in the generation before yours to the current generation. I mean, I, as I said, I feel like the Church has kind of made it part of Ireland's history to, you know, take mm. a chain, box it up and throw it out of the country because it isn't part of the pure image. Yeah. But I think Throughout generations, women have been hurt. Like, it's not just people of my age who are realizing that people who can get pregnant have been hurt by this. Certainly people in previous generations probably haven't felt as able to speak out about the injustices. So, Shivahi, I don't know whether you're planning to stay and practice medicine in Ireland, but, you know, as a future doctor, what would be your, your greatest hope, your aspiration for this progress towards access to services? I mean, I do help coordinate medical students for choice here, and God willing, I have intended to make my home here in the future. So I think it is quite pertinent, really. And as medical students for choice, we've always been committed to, you know, providing training workshops for things like improved contraception and things like improved sexual health care education. I mean, for me, my biggest hope is that the conversation doesn't stop here, that we don't just get a yes or no either way on this referendum and just stop. Mm. I hope that the conversation broadens out into, you know, improved sexual health care education, improved provision mm. of free mm. access to contraceptives for all. I think the most encouraging thing is the willingness to discuss it, the fact that most people know that it's happening and have 
some kind of idea about it and are open to it being, you know, to people knocking on their door and having mm. conversations about it or to coming up to you on the street and when you're giving out leaflets and being like, I don't really know what I'm going to decide. And, you know, so people ask you questions, which is... Which exactly. is not what happened last time, I can assure you. <laughs> so people actually yes. questions wanting to engage in the conversation. Yes. Yes, and I think it's that willingness to discuss and the willingness to find out and the you know, not the I think Ireland for a long time has instinctively disliked change. Mm. And I think that that is starting to change. A lot yeah. of people would say I'm okay with it in the case of rape or fatal fetal mm. abnormalities, but not mm. the rest of the time. Right. Um, and it kind of it comes from this conception and this rhetoric that people will just have abortions because they yes. feel like really they're because you know yes. exactly. Yes. And I think that it's it's a really troubling, not just a troubling perception of women, but a very troubling perception of anyone who's ever gone through an abortion situation and knows how incredibly difficult that decision is and what a a difficult situation is for every single person, even if yes. their social circumstance is ideal. So these two conversations were so interesting because uh, Kira and Shibangi have different perspectives and different points to offer, but they also kind of aligned in some ways. And one of the things that was kind of present throughout your conversation with both of them, really, although it was Kira who kind of really emphasized it, was this idea of the generation gap and how Mm. this issue, you know, as you are well aware, you know, in 1983, it was so hard to kind of move people on this. And of course, you know, this amendment came through and then these many years later, the public perception really seems to have changed. And I found that very interesting. Yes, this was a theme in both of the conversations. And another part of this that I thought was especially interesting and what Shibangi had to say was that she sees some people who were maybe in their 20s in 1983 revisiting this as older people and maybe having a different kind of view on it. And, you know, one of the ways in which we think about what the state should and shouldn't be able to do, and law students are very familiar with this concept, is by talking about the public-private distinction. What are the decisions that should be down to an individual and should be private, and what are the decisions that the state should play a role in enforcing standards? And what Ireland illustrates so perfectly is that we go back and forth between what fits under each heading. So, for example... In decades past, we considered the matter of whether a man beat his wife to be a private matter. Mm -hmm. Today, we would say that's part of the state's responsibility to protect women. Uh, Equally, in past times, we said it was a private matter if people chose to discriminate. Now we say it's the state's responsibility. And in 1983 in Ireland, there was a decision that it was the state's responsibility to prevent women from seeking termination services. And I think that they have moved back in the other direction. Uh, And one that we see in the same way in many other countries, which is that a woman and her doctor, a pregnant woman and her doctor, have a right to make their own private decision. And I think that Ireland is a perfect, in some ways, microcosm of how these social attitudes have changed over time. And I think that both we see a generational shift and we also 
see some reevaluation by older people of views that they maybe held 20 or 30 years ago. The other big thing that struck me about these conversations, and I think it's probably the thing that struck me most, was what I believe it was Kira talked about, the idea that there seems to be this perception that if abortions are more easily obtained, that women will just rush around and have them willy-nilly and, you know, carefree and just, you know, oh, well, I might as well just go mm. and, and do that. And which, of course, if you stop and think about it for even a second, is absurd because, you know, no matter what the circumstance is, it's always going to be a very difficult, very fraught right. decision that I think nobody ever has considered lightly. Right. And there's this prevailing a myth of the casual abortion. Right, right. The abortion can be just used as birth control. Right. Uh, and, you know, I think at the time in 1983, we used to say, you know, of course we're anti-abortion. Everybody's anti-abortion. <laughs> Who would be pro-abortion? Right. The issue is about choice. Mm -hmm. And I think that this also does come back to this whole public-private piece a little bit that we were talking mm -hmm. about earlier on, because the, the stereotype here is that Abortion has to be unconstitutional in Ireland because it is not just a crime but a sin, that it's immoral, and it's immoral because it's murder. And this is a way of understanding the decisions that women might make about very difficult continuations of pregnancy in an incredibly distorted frame because, as Kira says right at the very end of the podcast, and I think very movingly, this is always a traumatic period in somebody's life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's calculated that approximately one in three women have at some point had a termination in their lifetimes. And none of them did that as an alternative to birth control. They did it because of either a failure of birth control, because of a very traumatic incident that resulted in them becoming pregnant, or perhaps because of some difficulty with the pregnancy. And I think that this, exactly as you put it, this, idea, this myth of casual abortion is one of the things that the Repeal the Eighth campaign has had to really work to change. Mm -hmm. Jumping off of that idea of abortion being murder, abortion being a sin, and of course that reflects the the power of the Catholic Church, definitely that still was yes. very strong in 1983, but it does seem as though that power has lessened since then. Yes, significantly, and, and that's the other thing that's so interesting about uh, what both of these young women have to say. In 1983, the pulpit was a very important part of the public campaign. Um, it was used very explicitly. Mm -hmm. And what I learned when I was in Dublin about a month ago and talking to some of my own friends of my own age who worked on the 1983 campaign with me is that although, of course, the Catholic Church is still telling people that they should absolutely vote against repealing the Eighth, there is nothing like the same level of clout and there is nothing like the same level of control that people experienced back in 1983. And in fact, some of them have said to me, and I don't know whether this is maybe a little kind of doomsday-ish, that in some ways this is the Irish Catholic Church's last stand. If they lose on May 25th, if repeal the 8th succeeds, that will forever change the role of the Catholic Church hmm. in Irish society.
we will be keeping our eyes, of course, on the campaign as it continues, and we would invite our listeners to look out for the result on May 25th, because whatever it is, it's going to be very important for the future of Ireland. In other news, on April 26, the Ontario Ministry of the Attorney General published a press release about their new plan to create community justice centres in Toronto, London and Kenora. The press release also provides links to additional information about community justice centres, including information about the 70 communities around the world that have begun to implement them. The press release states that the community justice centre model in other jurisdictions has led to healthier and safer communities, with improved outcomes for public safety, community well-being, rates of incarceration, trust in the justice system, and cost savings. In the case of Toronto, design and planning will begin this fall, with the facility forecasted to begin providing services sometime in 2020. In particular, the Community Justice Centre plans to address the overlap of legal and social issues, with a focus on homelessness, addiction, mental health, poverty, education, and employment issues. We're optimistic that this initiative might help improve issues of access to justice, especially when responding to the overrepresentation of marginalized, racialized, and indigenous people in the criminal justice system. Our second other news item is especially timely, considering that last week's podcast dealt with the UK inquiry into child sexual abuse. On Tuesday, April 24th, the province of Saskatchewan announced the LISTEN Project, an initiative to help survivors of sexual violence navigate the justice system and obtain two hours of free legal advice. The LISTEN Project is hosted by the Public Legal Education Association of Saskatchewan and was funded by the federal government. There is a restriction that the sexual violence needed to have happened in Saskatchewan, but the program is trying to increase access in many different ways. For one, survivors have the option of speaking with a lawyer either in person, over the phone, or online. Additionally, the program is open to anyone who has experienced sexual assault, exploitation, harassment, and historical sexual abuse. Third, the project does not have restrictions for age or gender and does not require a police report to receive the free legal advice. The pilot project is slated to run until March 2021, and there might be opportunities to expand this project into other provinces. As always, links related to these stories, as well as to our main topic, the Repeal the Eighth Movement in Ireland, will be posted to our podcast webpage, representingyourselfcanada.com slash podcast. So this is the last episode of the current season of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. As usual, we have had a wonderful time speaking to all the amazing guests we've had. We are going to take a break and I will keep recording conversations uh, and we will be back later in the summer. We've got some great upcoming uh, episodes for yeah. our next season. One of the episodes we're going to be doing will be uh, looking at the 50th anniversary of the University of Windsor Law School, which is very exciting. This is that yes. year, so we'll do a great episode speaking to a with number some of, of our alums. Yeah, yep. with alums and with some faculty, and that'll be really cool. We're also going to be doing an episode on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, talking to two of Julie's faculty colleagues, colleagues yep. at Windsor Law about that. Um, we'll also have an interview with lawyer Renata Austin, who is an amazing attorney mm. serving marginalized communities. We'll be talking with Sadiqa Jessa, who is an incredible woman challenging um, Muslim communities on their acceptance of LGBTQ people. 
yeah, lots of really good stuff coming in the next season. And we would also encourage everybody to go back and listen to episodes that you might have missed. There's a huge range of episodes in this second season and to share them as widely as possible. And we always welcome all your feedback. Absolutely. So until next season, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>